Okay, we've come to uh, the final presentation in our plenary session this morning, and I'm delighted to introduce Steve Beresford and Ahmad Salim, who are co-creators and co-hosts of Exploration Radio, a podcast on the past, present, and future of mining exploration. And I think they're going to need no introduction once we start their presentation, but I'll just tell you quickly that Steve's been a chief geoscientist for a number of mining companies and a professor at several universities in Australia. And his current passion is looking for supergiant deposits formed by interaction with salt. While Ahmad is director of business development for VerAI, where he exercises his passion for utilizing the latest in artificial intelligence technology. Together, they're going to share with us what they have learned from their guests about ideas that must live and die in exploration. And we have a pre-recorded film, so we're going to dim the lights, get your popcorn, settle in. There's lots of seats up front. Um, and we're going to learn about um, ideas in exploration from Exploration Radio. Welcome to Exploration Radio. So now, uh, we often get asked about doing presentations uh, about our podcast. And to be honest, we really don't know what we can present on uh, because, you know, we are a podcast and it's pretty hard to do a, a presentation on a podcast or things that we've learned on a podcast. It doesn't quite uh, translate to a PowerPoint that easily. So this is our attempt at doing a presentation of what we've learned on the podcast. Cool. Let's go for it. All right. So this uh, presentation is on ideas that must live and die in mining and exploration. So every time we interview someone on our podcast, we always ask them two questions right at the end. And they are, what are some ideas that you think need to die in our industry? And what are some uh, ideas could be, a, uh, not just ideas, but a behavior, a concept, anything that needs to be maintained in our industry. So the first idea that must die, which a lot of our guests have kind of mentioned, is can be I guess combined into a topic called uh, economic geology does not have enough economic in it, which is a comment made by John Van, who was on our podcast. So let's riff on that for a little bit. Yeah, so I think this is partly a, a misunderstanding from each side of, of the coin talking past each other. A lot of the science that we use in exploration, uh, even the geoscience, it just doesn't fit under the, the category of economic geology. The discipline of economic geology is just a different discipline. Some people misunderstand me and think that I'm talking about all the things that go on in exploration that aren't geology, but I'm, I'm talking about geology. This is mm -hmm. way more to the science. It's like a Venn diagram where there is an overlap between economic geology and targeting science. Yeah, like the way that I guess I kind of think about it is that, you know, like you could separate what we call economic geology into maybe two kind of distinct buckets, right? One of them could be the geology of ore deposits and the geology of finding ore deposits or the science of finding ore deposits. And yeah. they're different. And they're fundamentally they different. different. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Because I think one of them is kind of like the internal search. Like, you know, we have a deposit and we're kind of using science to figure that, that uh, deposit out. And I think the other one is the extrapolation of that science out to uh, what, like how could we predict and find the next one and, and what science do we need to create to kind of find it? And, and the latter has to involve searching under uncertainty, not under certainty yeah. like most uh, retrospective scientists. Yeah, let's go back. You know, we often kind of say that the like geology, there's uh, a little bit of art and science in it. 
And I think the science part of it is the understanding of ore deposits. The art part of it could really be around the exploration of ore deposits. And yeah, like, so fundamentally, if you kind of think about, yeah, like science is objective and theoretical and art is subjective and conceptual to a large degree. So exploration of ore deposits is largely, you know, to some degree subjective and it's definitely more conceptual. So even to... Um labor on that just a little bit more if you go back to someone like Karl Popper he would describe the discovery of a scientific concept as not being scientific mm -hmm. so that's actual right exploration and uh, discovery point is not being what he considered and it's only really philosophers at a later point than Karl who came along and thought you know there's more of a social element and that in fact there is science inside this but it's just different one of them is under uncertainty and is a sort of a decision science that's trying to find something for the first time. And the other one's the sort of, to quote Thomas Kuhn, is the normal science, trying to explain something uh, retrospectively. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's, the, that's I think, the part is that, you know, we, we often kind of uh, talk about this, that a lot of um, the discovery of ore deposits is almost done yeah, like with hindsight, you know, we, uh, you know, once we have the deposit, we can explain all of these things, you know, it's very forensic, you know, we know exactly why all the things kind of fit into place, but that doesn't always translate to the predictive side because uh, that's a much uh, bigger challenge to kind of figure out. So if you were sitting uh, from an academic <coughs> perspective, a, a traditional economic geologist, what would you say needs to be uh, included in their discipline that isn't now? Well, I think they, you know, like I guess fundamentally, if you kind of look at the the academia part of it, is that a lot of the problems that we get in exploration aren't necessarily all uh, academic problems. I think they're more applied problems. Yeah, and then we kind of talk about this, uh, or you and I kind of talk about this, you know, they, there is a natural evolution in the science where you go from, so let's take physics, right? So, you know, so physics was uh, essentially a lot of theoretical physicists, and then they had to become a lot more, uh, a lot of experimental physicists to actually test a lot of these hypotheses and theories that people have put out. And I think we're probably talking about that transition happening in particularly the science of exploring, or perhaps you could even say the science of understanding ore deposits. You know, like we have a lot of theories, but probably the branch of I guess academia or science we don't have is more the the theoretic the the experimental kind of um, explorationist or or geologist or geoscience to some so degree, I, and that really is only really done in in industry. But but that information isn't uh, communicated back to academia in a very meaningful way right now. Yeah, well, one is paid to um, record, and one is paid not to record. Mm -hmm. And so therefore there is an inherent bias uh, in the written words. There's a sort of what I call, a, what I've borrowed, the tyranny of the archive, which is the written word is a massive bias. So the yeah. vast majority of industrial research is never documented or at least never documented in a public manner. Correct. Oh, it's not. It's not documented across boundaries either. Company boundaries, right? So, like, so, so, so companies, I think, do some fantastic research, applied research, but uh, there is not really a mechanism for them to share it because it's uh, probably commercially sensitive. Or if it's successful, it's definitely commercially sensitive. So it doesn't get communicated, and then and then that obviously doesn't add to the academic uh, expertise that's being built. And so this is not to say that you know, like. 
like I'm not advocating one's more important than the other. All I'm advocating is that that's actually this this two kind of uh, knowledge streams, and one is poorly communicated, probably poorly understood, or poorly labeled, and the other one is what we have access to, and we think that that's a full record, and and obviously it isn't. I, I would argue this is history full stop. So, vast majority of the historical record is a bias, you know, towards winners or written about winners, but it's a bias away from uh, the mobile. So let's riff on an example. Uh, how much of those who live in cities have recorded the information from those who are nomads, for example, throughout history? Now, who, le- who learnt the information versus who write it are different people. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's not finger pointing. That's probably just a fact. Now, there's there's all sorts of historical records from those who are fixed versus those who are mobile. That's now, how. The vast majority of the people who lived on the step, for example, have governed a large amount of our history. They've left very little record behind Correct. Of, of what they do. And that's just to labor on the point that the archive, the written word, doesn't capture the tacit knowledge that is accumulated. Yeah, and I think that's the key word is that the, the, that the tacit knowledge doesn't get communicated because it doesn't really get recorded uh, you know, to a large degree. Uh, a successful organization which has, I guess, a long pedigree, I think eventually creates a mechanism of capturing that tacit knowledge or at least hand, handing it down from people to people uh, if those people don't go through massive redundancies or something like that, right? But um, but if you could have continuity of people in your department, then that tacit knowledge will obviously get migrate down and up across the chain as well. Uh, but if you don't have that mechanism, then that knowledge will probably evaporate over time. And this is, I think, probably one of the reasons why, you know, one of the criticisms we do get, and I think it's a fair criticism, is that we repeat a lot of our effort is because a lot of that knowledge disappears through the, through the cycle of every bust cycle. And as a person who's been an academic and an industry, if from an academic perspective, it's very frustrating to know that industry's worked on things that have to be redone. Yeah. It's extremely frustrating to not feel that you're pushing the boundaries of the science just simply because it is unpublished or not documented. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you've just got to find the tacit knowledge. One of the things I'm quite excited about is, you know, just in a strange way, is YouTube, the YouTube generation. If you want to learn how to fix your plumbing, you can go to YouTube and the tacit knowledge is captured. It's one of the very few things that are. Try yeah. writing a document on fixing plumbing. Not very cool and also not very easy, but it's captured. No, no, that's how. It's captured. That information is actually transferred now. Yeah, and I think, and, and, and that's, I think, I guess, down to the fact that the threshold of people putting that knowledge out there is so simple that, you know, people put their screw-ups and their, their benefits and all other things that they, you know, like the, what is it, like the hacks, like, you know, the people that have worked out over solving things, you know, they can be communicated a lot easier. Have you seen people like Nick Tate, who's on LinkedIn showing little field videos? These mm-hmm. are the sort of things that I think are wonderful. These examples of people now, the sort of tricks of the trade that aren't written down. They just yep. absolutely are not, not documented, but they're in the heads of, you know, maturing, uh, experienced individuals. And if you haven't had a chance to work with people like that, you won't find them written. No, that's right. And yeah, so the only way you can get to that point is by replicating it. So so the you're replicating the successes and the failures. So yeah, and then that's, I guess, kind of the point. So to come back to kind of like our original topic here, yeah, that uh, economic geology has, like, you know, doesn't have, um, 
you know, to John Van's comment, economic geology doesn't have enough economic in it. I actually think that it probably doesn't have a lot of other things in it as well. You know, like we need to have a little bit more of the applied side, uh, uh, a little bit more formally that, you know, that economic geology as a, as a discipline, if you call it discipline, has to actually have more understanding of mineral economics and has to have more understanding of, you know, the, the more experimental side of, of geology and it has to have more production science, you know, like how do people that work in mines, you know, like how do they look at geology? You know, like maybe we think, you know, like maybe we have an academic view that we need to understand every single rock, but you know, on the mine side, you know, that's probably not important. They're, they're, they're fundamentally different things. So that, that, that actually is a very interesting point. Across the value chain, the science that's relevant to make a decision, what I would call decision science, changes as more information is accumulated, as the uncertainty decreases and the risk increases mm -hmm. with further exploration, the science changes as well as the degree of type of uncertainty changes as the thing becomes more real and the risks go up. And so when you say like the science, like, you know, to me, it's like more the value of information is different along that, in that chain. You know, the value of information for a for a mine, you know, that has to take, you know, like ore and fit it into a processing unit, you know, that value of inform information to them is fundamentally different than someone that's standing at the, the early stage exploration side of things. Oh, completely, but another way of looking at it, if you had to think of it as a minimization of what you do along every step, that choosing, you choose to do things at the beginning of the exploration process that are the minimum cost to make a decision at the beginning. Correct. Not, not to make a decision at the end of the value chain. So one of the criticisms we often see from advanced exploration through to projects and mines is, why didn't you collect this? Because we were focused on learning uh, through the uncertainty curve. We can't do everything at every step. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, we would be lost in mm -hmm. volume of data. And people misunderstand that the uncertainties are so high at that early stage. You're just trying to make decisions. And this is, I think, relevant to John's point, which is the science we want is a, de a decision science. The science to make the decision in front of me today is yeah, different yeah. to the science, perfect science, the accuracy that I might need to know. And yeah, yeah. So, oh, hold on to that point. We'll, we'll come back to that point about ideas that we want to kind of maintain. Um, so the so the second idea that, that we kind of talked about that must die is really around, you know, a, a little bit of the extension of the first one, which is around a number of our guests have kind of commented that, you know, we need to have boots on ground. And I guess one thing I kind of challenge is, like, you know, do boots have to be on the ground? And then, and then and now that seems like a facetious comment, and I can see there's probably people, you know, like in our audience that will go, oh, no, you guys have lost the plot here. But, you know, like, I guess the question is that when people say that we want boots on ground, you know, like, like what argument are you making? Are you making an argument that we need to maintain the the practices of essentially, you know, like uh, realistically that could be called prospecting? Do we need to maintain all of those practices all the way? Uh, or do we need to keep the, you know, kind of the contextual understanding of what's important when we have people, when we have boots on ground or people in the field? And do we need to maintain that or, or evolve that concept along? So I'm with you on that. I think there's a nuance to this question that most people don't want to accept, which is that it depends. And it depends on a number of factors of which, which we have to take into account. And one of them is the maturity of the search space. Mm -hmm. So some of the disagreements on boots and ground are simply people operating in different times or in different places. Mm -hmm. So different relevance of search space. And 
we were just having a conversation about the Valley of the Kings, which is a classic example of a maturing yep. search space, an example of where when you ask that question matters. Correct. Not just what the question is. Boots on ground at the beginning of the Valley of the Kings is the only relevant question to be asking. But to continuing to explore those same tombs. Yeah. Well, and I think like, yeah, like, so, so philosophically, let me break it down into like something maybe like a little bit more like, uh, yeah, like simpler. If you were, if you were a medical professional before the advent of x-rays, would you still advocate cut, you know, cutting open people to figure out what the ailments were? Or would you prefer going down the aspect of a non-invasive method like x-rays, but still utilizing your kind of contextual understanding of what you're looking for and whether the x-rays is giving you that? Yeah, so sometimes I think when people say, oh, we still need people like boots on the ground, and say, you know, like, are you, are you advocating for like the invasive kind of methods of going and finding what's wrong with people? Because clearly that has a cost to people and, you know, like, and outcomes that you wouldn't have if you didn't have, if you went down the non-invasive method of just using x-rays and things like that. So maybe we should sit down and figure out well, what are the, the contextual kind of understanding? What are the important things that we want people to maintain about the boots on ground aspect that shouldn't be eliminated from purely a, a desktop exercise or things like that? So, a couple, so I agree. A few of them that come to mind would be uh, that uh, first movers or first interactors are social license interactors in the first place. So that's a different uh, way of looking at it, but arguably, that just means the skills are different. The second one is, I don't think you often get scale unless you stand on the ground. Yep. At least I don't. And so I always get something from being on the ground. And I know there are people in the audience who will be going, let's go for the obvious one, is you can't find anything from behind your desk. We can disagree with that comment, or at least there's a nuance around that question, which is getting out and doing something is what we really mean. That's the translation yep. of what we mean. You can't find something without doing anything. Mm -hmm. And so what does doing something mean? That's going to increasingly change uh, with deeper search spaces. That's obvious. It's also going to increasingly change as we think of new ways to explore. Mm -hmm. And we will think of new, and we are thinking of new ways to explore with deeper search spaces. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's kind of the, the aspect that we maybe don't address is that yeah, like to say that we should be using practices that we're still using in the past is to acknowledge that the future is going to be the same as the past. But we know that, you know, the challenges that we face now in, in trying to explore or even understanding our science or our kind of um, our physical representation of what we're looking for, like deposits or geology, you know, that's fundamentally changing to a large degree. You know, like we are probably now trying to do things in the subsurface a lot more and, and our aspect of, I guess, surface mapping can only lead us so far down the understanding of, of subsurface geology. You know, like we're going to need something else to kind of uh, do it. And that's with the caveat that we're always going to be living in a transitional <laughs> space. So there's going to be an overlap period, which is transitional, two speeds, if you like, mm -hmm. where we live in two different worlds at the same time. And I would argue the and this goes back to the episode we did with John Aronsky, that's exactly what we're in. The reason why there's disagreement is we're living in two worlds at the same time, a world yeah. where you can still be successful one way and a world <clears throat> where you can you need to change to be successful in a different search space. And so and both are correct. Yeah, and it comes back to kind of the point that, you know, like if you're kind of searching, yeah, if you're exploring for a deposit and then someone else goes and and stumbles on something like, you know, the, the traditional boots on ground approach, you know, then their, then their answer to you is like, well, your effort has failed because 
you know, we walked onto a deposit and found it. And it's like, yeah, like fair enough. Like, you know, they were successful using that approach, but but that's not necessarily something that's gonna work for everyone because other people are kind of dealing with a completely different different set of problems. Um, and yeah, like before we were talking about, I kind of gave this this analogy, like, you know, most people are probably uh, aware of the, you know, the old Henry Ford kind of saying that, you know, if I ask my customers, uh, you know, they would have told me I want a faster horse. Uh, but again, like I recently, when I was kind of researching some topics, I came across this uh, kind of article that was put together by this journalist. Yeah, and, and he talked about the fact that it was Henry Ford and a few other industrialists around. And so I, I guess an evolution of that kind of uh, statement that Henry Ford has made was that there was someone in that group, uh, a well-renowned industrialist whose name escapes me right now. But yeah, his comment was along the lines of, well, why would anyone want to travel faster than a horse? Why do we need a car? And I think, yeah, like when we kind of say that boots on the ground are important, it kind of is the same as saying that, you know, but why do we want to, why would anyone want to travel faster than what a horse can do? It's like, well, there are certain uh, situations where we would definitely want to travel faster than the horse. Like, yeah, if you wanted to get from one end of the country to the other, maybe the horse is not the best uh, thing to get you from one end to the other. And I think that's, that's I guess, my way of kind of explaining is that when someone says that we should use alternate methodologies, you know, like, you know, like the fundamental, that contextual understanding, I guess, I want people to kind of look at is to go, well, is the horse the best mode of transportation if you want to get from New York to LA? Yeah, and uh, or from one end of Australia to the other. And, and if it's not, what is actually the best method of transportation for you? So th th there's a, uh, again, talking of transitions, I really like the concept of zones or liminal spaces, things that are in between. Another one would be the augmentation of your existing skills. There's where I am as a geologist today and where I could be as a geologist tomorrow without necessarily changing uh, or changing incrementally. So just by adding new skills beyond my hand lens and my optical skills, mm -hmm. I can become vastly superior by augmenting myself without replacing myself. Well, even like some, something like fundamentally, right? Like, yeah, like it might take you 15 years to learn to confidently identify certain mineralogy, but what if you could augment your skill set and get to that same point in a year? You know, like, is that a better outcome or a, uh, or a worse outcome? I would argue that's a better outcome. So you're now getting into something that really I'm passionate about, which is the concept of accelerated learning, which is one of the things that bothers me is we're, we're doing less and less geology on your average day per job. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it's taking longer and longer to acquire expertise. And the only way I can see around this you know, fundamentally flawed mathematics is essentially that we have to accelerate somewhere inside, like a campaign whereby you're learning faster. So the example I use is like an e-foil. If you want to learn surfing faster, uh, don't surf five waves a day, surf 30 waves a day or 50 waves a day. Yes. Accelerate uh, what you do in the time you're doing it. And so do augment your geology so that you're learning faster within the time you have available, knowing full well that you still are on a learning curve. So you have to, another way of putting that is it's about acceleration, not top speed. You, yep. need, you absolutely have to change the trajectory in which you're learning at the moment. Yep. Nah, I think that's true. All right. So those were ideas that must die. Um, so ideas that must live or be maintained. Um, so the first one of them is, and I think this is something that kind of come has come through a number of our guests around the fact that, you know, like 
ultimately, if you kind of condense down what we do from a technical point of view, or even from a uh, economic point of view, or from a, a, I guess, a commercial business point of view, you know, like a lot of our industry is really around uh, decision optimization. And what I mean by that is that in our industry, probably maybe compared to most other industries, you know, there's a, a certain level of uncertainty that you have to deal with. You know, fundamentally, even if you think about kind of the business, you know, the business uh, of, uh, you know, most mining companies are price takers. They have to take the price that's already given to them. And I would, uh, maybe people can say we are really good at forecasting commodity prices, but I could make a really good argument about the fact that we're terrible at forecasting commodity prices. So there's always this level of uncertainty that's kind of attached to it. And I think if you go all the way, you know, like from the, from the mining side, so if you're building a mine, you have the uncertainty of the commodity price kind of hanging over you. And also the uncertainty around your resource and the uncertainty around, you know, like how well your processing methodology could apply to the whole resource rather than, you know, the, the vast majority of it and all, all of those things. Uh, whether you can, your uncertainty around whether you can execute on the mine plan in the way that you kind of built it. Yeah, you know, like if you're a block cave mine, you know, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about whether you can actually fire this thing off the right way and you can get everything you want out of it. And then you go all the way back down to, I think, expiration, you know, where you're, it's, I think, a lot clearer to see how you have to make decisions under uncertainty. So I think a lot of our decision is really around that, you know, like you have to understand how to make those decisions or optimize those decisions as best as possible. Yeah, and I, I, this is a segue into the next one, which is around people. It's people who make decisions at the moment and people are superior. If you go back to someone like, Danny Kahneman and the systems one and system two, mm -hmm. or even if you take a naturalistic thinking, which thinks that heuristics are features, not bugs, what you're looking at is that there is uncertainty. In fact, uh, the opportunity only exists because there is uncertainty. I think people think uncertainty is a bad word. In fact, no, that's you right. know, it's essential that we have it. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't exist. Yeah, it's, that's it's all right. good to look in hindsight and come back and go, look, I don't want any uncertainty. You're like, no, no, it's a requirement. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, we've got nothing to do. That's right. Yeah. So we're trying to create and it, something. And it's interesting, like, you know, like if you're an investor, you know, like the opportunity exists because of arbitrage. But if you're uh, an explorer, if you're trying to find something or uh, do something new, it's the uncertainty that provides you the opportunity. And, and it, it impacts on everything from science. So, uh, you know, as a former academic, the whole purpose of academia is to explain something. You're an explainer. You're explaining something by definition after the fact. It might be for future looking purposes as well, but it is an explanation after the fact, uh, as opposed to an explorer who's in the middle of a process mm -hmm. and a process that has no guarantee. And so, you know, we were starting this conversation. If the, one of the unique things about mineral exploration is if you're in the wrong place at the very beginning of the process, it's unrecoverable. So it's not, a shoe right. it's not a shoe factory. You can't make better shoes and yeah. iterate during the process. It is already over if you failed on step one, line one. Yeah. So, yeah. And I can't, like, you know, like, I, I'm not sure if I've given this example in any of our interviews yet, but, yeah, like, I often kind of say this example in that, you know, if you're, uh, if you're navigating to a, a certain location, you know, it's the analogy is that what if you got your first turn wrong as opposed to your last turn wrong? You know, the last turn is recoverable. If you went left instead of right, you know, like, you just go back. But if you got the first one wrong, you got to go all the way back. And that, you know, and that could be catastrophic. So this circles back around to the things we talked about at the very beginning about the definition of economic geology and the concept of what art means. This is something that's got me really fascinated. If you really think about it, 
the concept of dealing with uncertainty is something that I think the artistic endeavors do better than the science. Science mm-hmm. struggles with the concept of uncertainty, especially you know really large scale ontological uncertainty. It just really struggles with. Whereas art lives in this space. Yeah, and I think the difference really is that if you take the traditional definition of science in that it is theory-driven or hypothesis-driven, it is really hard to come up with hypotheses about uncertainty, right? But it is really easy to come up with conceptual understanding of concepts about uncertainty. And I think that's kind of the difference in how, you know, like, when if, if you think that they, like, you can, you know, like, brute force science your way through uncertainty, Maybe you can to to some aspect, but yeah, essentially you're gonna have to come up with concepts, and then once the concepts have some validity, then surely you could come up with theories and hypotheses and, and and to test them. But the fundamental step really has to be around that you have to come up with a conceptual understanding of what you could what you could have, and then you're gonna kind of build things on that. And and some people might think like you know the definition of uh, concepts to hypotheses to uh, theories might be completely different, but but this is where I guess, you know, like if you take the kind of the established view of science, there is a, a methodology that's applied to the hypotheses, which is the falsification of hypotheses. And I think if you apply that methodology to hugely uncertain environments, I don't think it, you know, it, philosophically, I don't think it works. So it, it requires something else outside of science. So I, I would argue that in that space is what's called participatory knowing, or mm-hmm. you could call experiment. Experimental learning. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, which is that you have to do something in order to understand what it means. That's a concept that I think doesn't uh, live in science very well. Mm-hmm. It lives in the world a lot better, which is that there are, there, we had this conversation about tacit knowledge. A lot of people struggle that the concept that there could be hidden data or Correct. dark data or data that isn't easy to look at. Well, the same goes with just about everything. Or, or even data that you didn't think had any uh, application or any relevance, which can only be found out in hindsight afterwards. So if you were to look at just about every technique we use, we the vast majority of the data we don't use because mm-hmm. we don't know what it means. So you feed that back in, we're always dealing with mass uncertainty, but we're making intuition-based decisions or based on existing science cutting down our options because otherwise we would be paralyzed with indecision and that's back to this concept about decision science this is a decision science we have to make decisions and if you wanted to be purely rational about it you will be paralyzed Mm -hmm. by making them so you have to be able to feel the decision not just know rationally what the options are it is a, a combination of both and of course that's going to freak a few people out because i've drifted from pure science that's right yep um all right so the last idea that we must maintain is that people drive this industry yeah like ultimately i think this is you know like unequivocally most of the people that have come on our show when we've said what is one thing that we need to maintain they've said the importance on people because uh for people that have experienced other industries and then come and experience our industry you know one thing that they often find is that overwhelmingly people in our industry are intrinsically motivated and passionate and i think that's a very simple reason is that yeah if you want someone to uh live a fly and a fly out lifestyle where they go you know in the middle of nowhere in a dusty place or in a wooded place or whatever it is and look at the you know the back end of a drilling rig for two weeks at a time 
you need to have some i think intrinsic motivation there has to be some reason that drives you to kind of go out there and i think that's something we shouldn't forget is that our industry you know like our industry is full of people like this so i would argue there's one other point too which is imagine spending your life looking for something that you probably won't find exactly. so there's a special type of person that's motivated by the journey so i mentioned the example of motivated by constant and utter disappointment at every uh, step that you go through so there's a tolerance of uncertainty in there that would be paralyzing mm-hmm. again to use their word if you weren't intrinsically motivated if the, if the journey and the chase wasn't the part of the thrill um so i used an example from the valley of the kings before about this polish guy who spent his whole life looking for a tomb that he sure's <laughs> there but hasn't found and some people could look at that as as a waste of a life but they misunderstanding the journey that every day he believes that he's on that track and is getting closer and closer mm-hmm. and that has been his life's work to be closer and closer that's why now there are just people out there who will not comprehend that kind of motivation but welcome to the people of our industry Mm-hmm. that's right and i think you know like and i think this is one of the probably the most unique things about our industry in that you know like if you think about i guess other industries you know they probably didn't have the level of uh challenges that had to kind of get solved to get there yeah and i think that's a common thread in most uh like industries that deal with natural resources uh that you know it always has to have that little little bit of like pioneering spirit and i just don't mean in exploration you know like it takes a certain pioneering um a spirit to go well we're going to build a mine there we're going to solve all the challenges that come with it you know and that could be something simple like the logistics you know how are we going to get you know materials from like around cities to in the middle of nowhere you know like how are we going to solve that challenge how are we going to solve you know the communication challenge how are we going to solve uh the 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 people challenge you know like how do we get people to live out in the middle of nowhere and how do we do all of those things so you know so i think there's most of the time when you look at any kind of natural resource industry you know it could be fishing could be you know the the great show what is it about alaska's crab fishermen or whatever it is yeah like you talk about those guys you know like some people look at it and go oh, these guys are crazy yeah but there i think that there are those challenges where you have to kind of go and uh and and deal with your deal with what the environment gives you you don't necessarily get to build your environment you kind of get to figure out how you can live in that environment and deal with it and and kind of do all of those things and i think that's something i think unique about our industry is that if you look at it you know it's really full of people that always solve challenges along the way and i think that's something we shouldn't forget is that you know sometimes i think maybe we're a little bit hard on ourselves to say that you know we're not uh you know we're not the soup du jour because you know like for whatever reason but maybe we can actually kind of explain to people that you know how we got here is by actually solving all of these challenges this episode of exploration radio was brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Bersford produced by Sean Jeffrey exploration radio is supported by the AIG the Australian Institute of Geoscientists the MCA the Minerals Council of Australia the Society of Economic Geologists 121 group and the ASA and we are the official media partner of the 2022 PDAC conference Until next time, let's keep exploring.